Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, January 23rd, 2015. Viewing my notes here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think think critically and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up our Bible to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, authors, conference speakers, people put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, people that we need to be listening to, buying their books and stuff... <laughs> Well, if well, what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says when we compare it in context uh, using good, sound biblical hermeneutics. And over and again, we find that the most popular uh, <clears throat> people who are put forward in American evangelicalism today, well, they're not rightly handling God's Word. Instead, over and again, they are twisting God's Word. And that is not something that any Christian is given to do, especially those who are teaching other Christians. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to need to kind of get right to it. I've got a few things that I need to do today uh, in order to <clears throat> end the week off on a good note. And unfortunately, it was a short week because uh, of the fact that I was out of town at the beginning of the week. So I, I feel like I've got to cram some things in here today. And uh, one of the segments in particular that I want to do, I'm going to spend a little bit more time listening to the context because I, I want to show you something here. But uh, let's talk about what we're going to do. We're going to do we're going to do three things in our number one. Three things in our number one. We're going to start off with an email segment. We're going to answer some listener email. We're going to switch gears from there, and we're going to do a TD Jake's money grubbing televangelist update as we listen to him hijack and narcissistically hijack uh, a, a biblical text pertaining to the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, apparently, uh, this is all about running after your destiny. Now, you know, if you had any doubts as to whether or not T.D. Jakes may or may not be a false teacher, uh, this should put all that to rest. You know, let's just put it this way. We'll take a break after that. And then uh, second half of the first hour, um, I have received quite a few emails from people requesting you know, my opinion regarding Priscilla Shire. 
And uh, this is a gal who, you know, as I listen to her, she's extremely likable. And she is a lady who uh, is very engaging. And, you know, she just seems like the nicest lady in the whole world. She's very passionate about what she teaches. But unfortunately, uh, she has learned how to narcissistically isogete, in, in other words, be a narcissist, just like so many of uh, of the other popular pastors, preachers, and teachers. So we're going to do our first ever Priscilla Shire update. And I do not have Priscilla Shire update music, uh, but uh, you'll kind of get the idea of what's going on here. And I'm going to play something a little bit longer than I normally would in an hour number one segment because it actually is important for you to get the context. So, And then in hour number two, we're going to listen to another Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon, and he's going to be preaching a sermon entitled The Only Gospel, The Only Gospel. So I thought that would be a good way to uh, round out our short week here today at uh, Fighting for the Faith. And uh, since we've got so much ground to cover, that requires me to just kind of get right to it. And since we're doing an email update to begin with, here we go. That's our email update, music known as the typewriter, and I'm not going to play it in its entire today because we've got quite a few emails to get to before we get to our T.D. Jakes update. Uh, this email comes to us from Josh, and I do not know where Josh is from. By the way, when you send me an email and you, and you are hoping that it will be responded to on the air, uh, give me an idea of where in the world you are because Fighting for the Faith is literally listened to all over the planet. So. Uh, it helps if uh, you know you identify where you're from. So, Josh, I have no idea where you're from. So I'm going to say that you're from, hmm, let me see, where do I want him to be from? I'm going to say that you're from Johannesburg, South Africa. Yeah, I, I, I know you're probably not from there, but you are today. Okay, so uh, here's the... Uh, <laughs> Here's what Josh writes. He says, I love your critiques and listen to them almost all the time. And I found the verse that Ed Young is describing. Yeah, in that Fifty Shades of They sermon uh, where he was quoting Proverbs 27, 19. He says, it's in there, but it's in another paraphrase, uh, the paraphrase of the Living Bible. So the Living Bible uh, in Proverbs 27, 19, which is what um, uh, Ed Young was quoting from, uh, says this, uh, a mirror reflects a man's face, but what he is really like is shown by the kinds of friends he chooses. Yeah, <clears throat> we, might, we might want to change that paraphrase. Uh, a mirror reflects a man's face, but what he's really like is shown by the um, type of paraphrase of the Bible that he reads. Anyway, uh, yeah, the problem is this, is that uh, when we talk about biblical inspiration, when we talk about you know the word being inspired, inerrant, authoritative, we got to be careful because paraphrases are not that. And the reason why is because oftentimes they do not accurately reflect what the original manuscripts or the the ancient documents, the best documents that we have of the Old and New Testament say. And unfortunately for the Living Bible, uh, which was published in 1971, uh, Proverbs 27.19 does not accurately convey what's going on in the Hebrew text. And, in fact, there's no mention in the Hebrew, either explicitly or even implicitly based on the thoughts going on in Proverbs 27.19, that would reference friendship. As a result of this, the, this is, the, the Proverbs 27.19 is not something that you should build a theology or a doctrine or be preaching from. In fact, uh, pastors and preachers uh, are, according to Scripture, to be ones who are study. They study and show themselves approved 
as workmen who need not blush with embarrassment, who rightly handle the word of truth. And so pastors should be trained in the original languages, should know how to uh, quickly translate or refer back to the original text, the original languages, before they preach on a text so that they are able to rightly convey what is being said uh, in uh, in their sermons, because every translation falls short and uh, paraphrases often, you know, a hundred times sh- short, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, what Ed Young did there, I think the reason why he went to the uh, Proverbs twenty seven nineteen is because that particular version, uh, you know, English uh, version of the Bible lent itself towards what he was trying to convey in, in the message that he wanted to bring. He wasn't interested in bringing the message that God wanted to bring, which would require him to accurately, rightly exegete a biblical passage. So he began with what he wanted to say, and then he hunted and found a uh, a dubious tr- uh, paraphrase to support what he was saying. And he should know better. Uh, in fact, you know anybody who is a pastor who does that with God's word shows that he hasn't met the biblical qualifications of a pastor something to consider. Next email. This comes from uh, Mark in uh, Kearney, Nebraska. He says, Dear Pastor Rosebro, in light of the buildup to the State of the Union address tonight, uh, obviously this was a couple days ago, if I watch it, I plan on posting this on the TV, the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I think this is applicable to the soaking the successful message that we are bound to hear. And so, uh, you know, Mark, you you bring up an interesting point, but uh, I wouldn't have posted the Tenth Commandment there. I actually would have posted a different commandment, and uh, you'll notice that uh, the the Lutherans use the you know kind of the the older order of the Ten Commandments uh, than uh, Evangelicals and Calvinists do. So, but uh, the Seventh Commandment is the one that I think is in play here, uh, using the uh, the Lutheran numbering system for the commandments. And uh, I'm going to read to you a portion of Luther's small, uh, not, not, not small, but large catechism, uh, in, which are a series of sermons that Luther preached, by the way. If you uh, really want to uh, take a look at the basics of the Christian faith, Luther did a series on it. And this is the days before they had you know, audio recording. And so the way you would have to record a sermon is to actually write it down. And so in his sermon on the Ten Commandments, on the Seventh Commandment, you, shall, you are not to steal— um, listen to what he says on this. There's a few things that uh, I want to point out, but I think Luther has this right. And this pertains to the world of politics as well. But here's what Luther says. He says, after your own person and your spouse, the next thing that God wants to be protected is temporal property. And he has commanded us all to not rob or pilfer our neighbor's possessions. For to steal is nothing else to acquire someone else's property by unjust means. So that's a, you know kind of the explanation of what it means to steal. But uh, Luther then goes on to kind of you know in, in medieval terms explain this out a little bit. And here's what he says. We shall make this a bit clearer uh, to the common people so that they may see how upright we are. He says at the market and in everyday business the same fraud prevails in full power and force. One person openly cheats another with defective merchandise false weights and measures and counterfeit coins and takes advantage of the other by deception and sharp practices and crafty dealings. Or again, one swindles another in a trade and deliberately fleeces skins and torments him. Who can even describe or imagine it all? In short, thievery is the most common craft 
and the largest guild on the earth. If we look at the whole world and all of its situations, it is nothing but a big, wide, stable full of great thieves. This is why these people are so-called armchair bandits or, and highway robbers. Far from being picklocks and sneak thieves who pilfer the cash box, they sit in their chairs and are known as great lords and honorable upstanding citizens while they rob and steal under the cloak of legality. Now, in Luther's day, he didn't have communism, okay? Uh, not at all. But communism is basically a political ideology that has basically come up with the idea that if we make the law, then it becomes legal to steal other people's stuff. And so uh, what happens in politics over and over again from those who come from a collectivist ideology is they think that somehow it is a moral thing to basically look at what other people have and say, that's not fair, and so we're going to write a law, and the law is going to make it so that we can confiscate other people's stuff legally. Yeah, it might be legal, but um, I still think it falls far short of the biblical commandment that says, thou shalt not steal. And so it's one thing to pay taxes. It's another thing to... uh, raise taxes to the point where you're confiscating other people's stuff. So, Mark, good email, and uh, keep writing here. Next email uh, comes to us via Rob, and I do not know where Rob is, so I'm going to place him somewhere on the planet, uh, even though he's probably not there, but I'm going to put him in Singapore. And uh, Rob writes, he says, I loved your debate with Jim Staley. It helped me a lot. You did great. Thanks. I'd like to know what you think about the one thing that uh, Jim said near the end. He said, paraphrase, quote, we are saved by receiving Christ, but we prove that that faith by doing what he said. This sounds like he has a second work salvation condition, which he's adding to faith. I wonder if, if he was asked, do we have to prove our faith or is it that we will or should, what do you think he would answer? Now, this is a good question. Now, Jim Staley is a guy who believes in being Torah observant, and so when he talks about, well, we're saved by faith, but we have to prove that our faith by doing what he said, the reference he's referring to there is all of the laws and commands in the Mosaic Covenant. And so he's basically saying, yeah, well, if you're really saved, then you're going to be Torah observant, and what you're not going to eat bacon you're, you're going to uh, observe the Sabbath and all this kind of stuff. The problem is is that if that's your referent, nobody is actually capable of keeping the commands of the Mosaic Covenant. There are certain commands that are just absolutely, in, you can't possibly begin to uh, obey them. You know, So they'll sit there and say, well, we observe the, uh, the, the Jewish feast days or the, the Mosaic Covenant feast days, the, you know, the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and booths and things like that. And I would say hogwash. You do not observe them because Scripture makes it clear that the Passover, there's only one place that that can actually be observed, and that's Jerusalem. So you ain't observing the Passover and keeping those feast days unless you're actually paying attention to the details. And don't sit there and say that you're being uh, observant to the Sabbath because the Sabbath also, in order for you to be Sabbath observant, requires you to sacrifice animals. And there's no animals being sacrificed, so there's no possible way that you're keeping the Sabbath. So that's what he's referring to. So you know what Jim Staley is doing there is basically saying you're saved by grace, but you know, which is kind of like what the Judaizers did in Galatians. Yeah, listen, you know, Jesus died for your sins, but you've got to be circumcised. You've got to do this and you've got to do this. And 
And it's, it's, it's no matter how you slice it, what Jim Staley is putting forward is literally a modern-day incarnation of the uh, Judaizing heresy, uh, which is definitively put down in the, uh, in the book of Galatians. But now, let's talk about the right way of looking at works. And this is where people go wrong. They'll, they'll sit there and they'll look at God's word, and, they'll, and you have to understand, in God's word, you know, there are two categories that me- most passages fall into. Uh, they are the law and the promises. The law, in that sense, is kind of a you know a broad definition of law that's referring to you know God revealing what He would have us do, and the promises or the indicatives would be the things where uh, we learn what Christ has done for us. And here's where things go wrong for people: is they think that they are declared righteous before God by their law keeping. But Scripture in many, many places explicitly states that that is not the case, that good works follow faith. But anybody who seems who believes that their right standing before God is a result of their obedience does not yet have saving faith, and they are not their good works are not pleasing to God, not in the sense that they have a right standing before God. Every one of the commandments that's in Scripture actually presupposes that you have faith in God or in Christ, you know, now that, that we're New Testament, but even the Old Testament patriarchs, they had faith in, in the promises of God revealed in the Garden of Eden, uh, faith in the promises of God uh, revealed in the, in the Abrahamic covenant and things like that, and they're looking forward to the promise of the redemption and the forgiveness of their sins and the coming Messiah. We look backwards and we look at what the Messiah has done for us in fulfilling the law. But so the idea then is, is this, all of the commandments, all of the imperatives of the, of the entire Bible presuppose faith in God. If you do these things without faith, then, you're, then you know, they absolutely do not please God at all, because Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, James, the epistle of James, takes a look at the flip side of that same argument, and the flip side of that argument basically goes, well, listen, I'm saved by grace through faith. I don't have to do good works. <clears throat> yeah, see, the issue is is that, um, and James puts this in its right category, listen, just as a body that is breathing is dead, so faith without works is dead. You know, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't do good works. Now, notice here, I'm saying do good works and not saying that there's no such thing as a Christian who is, um, you know, 100% obedient to the law. Uh, you're not going to be obedient to the law this side of the resurrection, not perfectly. And so our right standing before God is established by everything that Christ has done. If you are in Christ, you do good works because that's what Christians do. Then the question comes up, well, what is a good work? And when you look at what God wills for you to do, uh-huh, you're, you go back to the Ten Commandments. See, the, the, this is where the moral law is. You go back to the Ten Commandments and you see that the good works that we do are the mundane things. You know, you are faithful to your wife or to your husband. You are a good father or mother. You obey your parents. Uh, you don't steal. Instead, you work diligently with your hands in order to provide for yourself and your family and also save out some of what you do in order to care for those in need. It's very mundane stuff. So the good works that we're called to do, they're truly good works, but the world despises them. And think of it this way. I mean, you know, what is abortion other than murdering? Well, it's murdering a, a, an unborn human being. But why? Because, well, our society despises this 
this thing, you know, called parenthood. You know, it's listen, you know, if I have a baby, it's going to cramp my life. You know, I've got aspirations, dreams that I need to fulfill. I want to do this, that or the other thing. And if I have a baby now, it'll ruin things. So they go and they, they murder their unborn child. But see, the good work is getting married and having kids. That means God wills for you. This is scripture. This is not, this is not Rosebro's opinion. God has the, created the world in a particular order. God wills for you to be married, to have children, to, you know, to raise your children up and to, you know, and that means, you know, changing dirty diapers. It means being up in the middle of the night when your child is sick with a fever and throwing up and cleaning up vomit. It means working with them on their homework. It means, you know, you just go down the list. I mean, it, it means preparing meals and things like that and caring for them and feeding them and clothing them. And, and yeah, right. So, you know, faith without works is dead. So what are the good works that we're called to do? We're not called to lock ourselves up in monasteries and, you know, and and, you know, things like that. And so, no, we're, we're called to, you know, love and serve our neighbor in our vocations. And that would be employee, mother, father, son, daughter, husband, wife, grandfather, grandmother. Yeah, those are the, and how do I know these are good works? Because God's word speaks so highly of them. So we shouldn't despise them. So, and, uh, you know, so there, I hope that answers your question regarding Jim Staley. Last question comes to me uh, via Chris, and I do not know where Chris is from. So I'll place him somewhere on the planet. And he is in uh, Madagascar. And so uh, Chris writes, he says, um, my question concerns the theology of C.S. Lewis. I appreciate some of the things I've heard Lewis say. In fact, I often use his illustration of mere Christianity of our being created in the image of God, where a child gives a piece of food to the other with nothing in return and declares that it's, it isn't fair. No doubt he was a brilliant guy, but there are other things I've heard him say that just don't seem Christian. I've felt this way for a while, but when I heard you talking, uh, taking questions the other day, I thought I'd ask. In fact, a few years ago, I put a blog uh, article up where I put together uh, particular quotes, and so he gives me the quote. So, yeah, C.S. Lewis is a is truly a guy of his age. You know, he's a 20th century um, literary guy, and uh, but he also happens to be probably, arguably, the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century. But that being said, um, C.S. Lewis is just like anybody else, and this includes me. There are things that he's going to say that you'll say, yep, that's right, that's correct, that's true. And we should rejoice in those things. He was a defender of the Christian faith, and he had faith in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. I believe he was a Christian, and I believe we will see him in the new heavens and the new earth. That being said, uh, there are things that you have to read in Lewis and sit there and go, yeah, no, I don't think he's right on this. No, there's, there's, he clearly has some philosophical things running around in his head. He was, uh, he was a Platonist. Um, he also was one of these guys uh, that I think believed in theistic evolution, and uh, there were some squirrely things that he said, especially you know in, in some of his uh, apologetic writings. But um, also, you can catch this at the uh, the the tail end of the uh, the book, The Last Battle in the Chronicles of Narnia, which leaves you scratching your head, you know, wondering how is it possible that somebody who isn't a Christian can actually be saved at the same time. So there's some things that run around in Lewis's theology which are worth us passing along, worth us saying that's a great argument, um, and there are things that he said that we have to sit there and say, yeah, I don't think that squares with Scripture. 
So the idea then is is that nobody should ever believe that just because you quote Lewis, that by quoting Lewis, you agree with everything he says. And if you're concerned that that's the case, you can say, I think that in this particular matter, on this topic, I think Lewis had a cogent point, and I think he was right, and here's what he said. And so what's the, the idea is is that uh, you know there's no point— they, uh, I don't think there's any Christian alive today say, I believe everything that C.S. Lewis you know, wrote and said down the line. Um, yeah, no. Uh, but see, that this is the idea. Everybody gets tested against the Word of God. Me, C.S. Lewis, Rick Warren, everybody does. So the idea is, is that um, when it comes to particular doctrines, uh, you know, th- I guess you have to keep a category in mind. You know, the difference between heresy versus heterodoxy. Okay, heresy would be somebody who is denying uh, one of the cardinal, you know, you know, cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. These would be non-negotiable. So somebody who says, "Listen, Jesus really isn't the Son of God. No, he's the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God," which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. You know, that by denying the deity of Christ, they've put themselves out of the Christian faith. They are heretics. They are not brothers in Christ. Okay. Um, somebody who you know who is a Christian who holds to theistic evolution, as dangerous as that is, that doesn't necessarily, and you have to put it that way, doesn't necessarily put them outside of the Christian faith. We would say they're wrong, and that's a heterodox teaching, and it doesn't square with God, what God has revealed in his word in both Genesis as well as what Jesus has affirmed, that the world was created in six days. And so, um, yeah, he's he's wrong on that. So... Uh, but we're not we are not going to put him outside of the Christian faith for that wrong belief because again it's that's not it, your view on creation is not necessarily uh, the indicator of whether or not you are orthodox you know so it, the, the, or whether or not you're a Christian it might not be an orthodox teaching but yeah so you got to be careful in those senses and. Uh, and since Lewis is not around to defend himself any day in his, uh, today, and his body of work stands as it is, I think we, you know, we have to take him, you know, for what he is, and rejoice and gladly, you know, take up those things that have been beneficial and useful for defending the Christian faith and explaining Christianity and those things that fall short. We say Lewis was wrong on those things. He was wrong, and uh, you know, and that's how it is with anybody. And I hope that answers your question. All right, moving along. I've got ninety. Yep, time for a money grubbing televangelist update. Forty thousand French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. Quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. It's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, money, money. Everyone must anchor for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep round, your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phrase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. All right, that's our money grubbing televangelist update music, and we're going to be listening to uh, well a portion of a message entitled "Run After Your Destiny," and this is put uh, put out there by TD Jakes, and this is a recent thing made available on his video podcast. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be listening to him taking a portion of scripture uh, that has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. 
Now you're thinking, well, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with running after your destiny? Well, if you're asking that question, you're asking the right question, because the answer is there is nothing to do with Jesus' resurrection that has anything to do with running after your destiny. So here's T.D. Jakes as he is misdirecting and taking the focus off of the resurrected Jesus, you know, who was crucified and rose again for your sins and for your justification, and somehow turning this into a text about running after your destiny. Here we go. St. John, chapter number 20. Now on the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early while it was yet dark unto the tomb. And she is the stone taken away from the tomb. She runneth therefore and cometh to Simon Peter and to other disciples whom Jesus, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we know not where they have lain him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and they went toward the tomb. Peter went forth and the other disciple and they went toward the temple and they both ran together. Somebody say that with me. And they both ran together. Say it again. And they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came first to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he see if the linen clothes, cloths lying, yet entered he not in. Simon Peter therefore also cometh following him and entered into the tomb, and he beholdeth the linen cloths lying, and the napkin that was upon his head not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then entered in, therefore, the other disciple also, who came first to the tomb, and he saw and believed. Somebody shout amen. amen. I want to talk from the subject, run after your destiny. Run after your... Now, that is crazy. That is absolutely crazy talk. Because do you think that the Apostle John penned the words that he penned there regarding the resurrection of Jesus and how he ran to the tomb? Do you think he penned those words in order to help you understand that you need to run after your destiny? Not at all. In fact, John himself at the end of his gospel says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. Yeah, this is all this was all written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, think of the story here. I mean, Jesus was crucified. Yeah, crucified on a Friday afternoon he's slaughtered on the on, on the eve of the of the great passover right and you know the, the, he's dead i mean john in his gospel talks about the fact that he saw them you know the the roman soldiers put take a spear and threw it up into his uh, chest to see if he was really dead through you know pierced his heart and out came blood and water i mean jesus the, the man who had a crown of thorns pressed into his head who had his nail hands nailed to the cross and his feet nailed to the cross and was in anguish suffering for our sins and died i mean we're talking graveyard stone cold dead and then on the third day he rose again from the grave this is a huge story, a huge miracle that we're hearing about in this text. And what is T.D. Jakes doing? 
He's hijacking it and saying, you need to run after your destiny. This is a bad, bad sign because he's taking your eyes off of Christ and putting them onto yourself. So somehow this is a text that, you know, is telling you to run after your destiny. It's not telling you anything of the sort. Touch your neighbor and say, run after your destiny. Do not stroll, do not walk, do not meander, do not wander, but roll after your destiny. The women have gone down to the tomb to add respect and homage to their leader. They, they did not go down to the tomb. Their leader, their savior, their Lord. Expecting him to be resurrected. That is the religious privilege that you have ascribed to this text because you understand the outcome. They were not coming down to the tomb expecting the stone to be rolled away because quite frankly, if they would have known that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead, they probably would have never left. Who would leave the tomb? If you were expecting him to get back up again, who would walk away and hide themselves up behind closed doors and be afraid to come out? If you thought the master was going to crescendo after three days and come out of the grave, it was not the magnitude of, of their commitment to faith. It was their love for the person that brings them down to the tomb with their frankincense and myrrh and their burial incenses just to aromatize that which smells. Because there are some places in life that smell. Uh, what? So notice, no sooner does he, you know, so on, in one sense he's telling the story, but immediately as after he gives a detail that is first century, the day of the resurrection, next thing you know, he's he's back into the 21st century and telling these people, because there's things in life that smell. What is this? There's something here that smells all right. I smell, yeah, that's false doctrine right there. And the women have come down to the tomb, no doubt with heavy hearts and tear-stained faces to memorialize the master. The master is gone. And there are some glorious people, glorious people, whose love is not so fickle that the love faints when the conditions change. Uh, what? What are you talking about? Now, see, here's the thing. I mean, as far as communicators go, I don't think there's anyone on the planet that compares to T.D. Jakes. He is clearly the most gifted communicator on planet Earth. The problem is that he uses this gift that he has to twist God's word and take our eyes off of Christ. There are a few people, a minority if you please, who are impassioned even when it's painful. Anybody can love you when you're up. Anybody can love you when you just got a promotion. Anybody can love you. So is this text about the resurrection of Jesus? Is, is this about, you know, when people don't love you, when you lose your job and, and things like that? What on earth is this? Just bought a yacht. 
But when everybody turns against you and all hell breaks loose and it looks like you're not a winner and it looks like the love doesn't pay, most people make a withdrawal when they don't see a benefit. Yeah, so it, I guess a good way to put this is that, um, you know, when you think of, uh, you know, girls, you know, they, they, they have long hair. One of the things they do is they braid it. You know, you, you, you t- I don't know how to braid, but I think you take it into three strands of hair and then and then you kind of weave it together into a braid. Um, think of that as what's going on here. This is a braided sermon. And what I mean by that is that on the one hand, there's one strand that's coming off of this thing where there's this where the biblical text is and it's there. But what he's doing is he's weaving around it false doctrine, a bad hermeneutic, a self-focused way of reading this text. So although the text is there, what he's saying or implying that it means, and that's probably a better way to talk about it because he's not he, he's not so crass as to say, so what this text means is that there, when there's haters in your life, when things aren't going well for you, you know, da-da-da-da-da. He's not so crass as to say that. Instead, what he just basically does is that, you know, he'll switch, he'll go from the strand where the biblical text is and pull in the other strand that is not what this text is saying at all and braid it with the, the, with the, other, with the other one. And by switching back and forth like that, it, he's basically implying that this text is about you, but it's not. I wonder, I can't help but wonder in my mind, where were the 5,000 with the two fish and five loaves of bread? They didn't make the crucifixion or the graveside service. They didn't come to bring memorials. And where was... Yeah, this is true. One with the issue of blood. The woman at the well. Where, Where were they? Yeah, now, what's the reason he's asking this question? Where was blind Bartimaeus? Why are you asking the question? Where was Lazarus? Isn't it amazing how you can pour yourself into people who do not pour themselves into you? Yeah, again, see, see, there it is. I mean, legitimate question, but now it's all about me. Notice that you pour yourself into people that don't pour themselves into you. Do you really think that's what this resurrection text is about? Yeah, no, it's not about that at all. That you can you can give yourself to people who will suck up all they can get. And the moment it doesn't look advantageous, they will all walk away. Uh-huh. Anyway, you get the idea of what's going on here. This is something that we feature here at Fighting for the Faith on a regular basis. It's known as narcissus or narcissistic eisegesis. Taking a biblical text that's not about you, hijacking it, and making it about you. And it's doubly, or I should say triply blasphemous when you take a text that's clearly about Jesus, designed to focus our eyes and our faith on Christ and glory in him and trust in him for what he has done for us and who he is, and make it about, well, the, 
you know, the, the difficulties of our own life. Yeah, that's yeah, that's just a mess. Makes you wonder, I mean, who invented this? Was it Stephen Furtick or did Stephen Furtick learn it from uh, T.D. Jakes? Regardless of where it comes from, you know, ultimately it has its origin not in Scripture, but I think in the mind of the devil himself as a way of trying to deceive us. Yeah, I think you get the point. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to do a Priscilla Shire update and uh, take a look at how she handles God's Word and see if she's somebody that uh, we should be studying in our small group studies as a sound execute. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. Hi. 
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about the Bowflex Max Trainer. Now, if you're like me and you want to stay fit and you want to exercise and keep active, uh, but you don't have hours to dedicate going to the gym, well, consider the Bowflex Max Trainer. I've been able to use this piece of equipment over the last nine weeks, and I've been consistently able to lose a pound a week on the Bowflex Max Trainer. And some days I was only able to exercise for 14 minutes. Yeah, that's right. There's a 14-minute workout on this thing that will leave you dripping with sweat. It uses uh, interval training to kind of boost your metabolism up, and the afterburn effect on this thing is actually quite amazing. So if you'd like more information about the Bowflex Max Trainer, visit fightingforthefaith.com, and along the side, you'll see an advertisement for the Bowflex there on our website. Click on that, head on over to the Bowflex site, and check out the information regarding the Bowflex Max Trainer trainer. It has been a fantastic piece of equipment for me, and I'm hoping that if you're looking for a piece of equipment that will work for you and you have limited time, this will help meet those needs. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Bowflex ad and get your Max Trainer today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with people who hijack biblical texts about Jesus and make them about themselves. In fact, all the scripture is really about him. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith send it to post office box 13344 grand forks north dakota zip code 58208 and let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we're doing here without it all right moving along now um like i said i've been receiving a lot of emails uh recently regarding priscilla shire and, uh, you know, and so I had to go out and find videos and teachings that she's put out there to kind of get a radar fix on what this lady is all about. Now, she's written books and there are people who uh, women's Bible study groups that are using Priscilla Shire's uh, books. And after sampling quite a bit of her teaching, I would say that's not a wise idea. And the reason it's not a wise idea is because she well, she's passing along the false way of reading scripture that she has learned. Now, she, like T.D. Jakes, is a gifted communicator, and she's just a really likable lady. And uh, the stories she tells are engaging. Uh, they're, they're somewhat funny, and she, and she teaches with passion. Yeah, all of these things are, these are good qualities. The issue is that what she does with scripture is the same kind of thing that we get from T.D. Jakes, 
from uh, Stephen Furtick, from so much of evangelicalism. You know, you basically allegorize the stories and make them about you. So we're going to be listening to a part of a sermon, and we're going to do this as a little bit of a longer segment because I was thinking that I wanted to jump to where she handles the biblical text so that you can see it, but I thought that actually the the, uh, personal anecdotal story that she tells at the beginning, which is a little bit long, actually sets the stage so that you can actually see for yourself what's wrong with her theology. The problem with her theology is the same thing that's wrong with so much of evangelical theology today. It's narcissistic eisegesis. So without any further ado, here's Priscilla Shire uh, teaching at Gateway Church. This is Robert Morris's uh, Gateway Church. This should tell you something as well. But uh, the name of the message we're going to be listening to in part is entitled Facing a Red Sea Challenge. I mean, there you go. Just the name of it should tell you what's going on. Here we go. It's a treat to be here. I just have a couple of thoughts that I want to share with you uh, from God's words. A couple of things that have profoundly impacted my life as I have asked the Holy Spirit to sear these little simple messages, to imprint them on my soul. And I'm asking that he would do that. Uh, for every single one of us today, simple things that can transform your entire life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that this book is alive. I thank you that it's not just black ink on a page, but that what the Holy Spirit does is that he causes... Now, let's point out the obvious here. Scripture forbids what she's doing. This is a church service. This is the sermon during a church service. Women are not given to do this. It's a leap up off the page and to grip us in our souls. So, Lord, I'm praying that in these next few moments that we're going to spend together, that you would do it only you can. God, I'm asking that you would take this one little simple message. Would you please divide it several thousand different ways? So that every single one of us under the sound of my voice hears a direct personal word straight from the mouth of God. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, (laughs) amen. As was mentioned, I have three boys. A couple of them are in service with me right now. So we're not starting with a biblical text. We're starting with an anecdotal story. And it's important for setting the stage because this will set the, the foundation for the entire message. One of them is shaking their head at me just like this because he knows where I'm going. Um, And I have another son as well that is uh, in Sunday school or in your kids' church um, this afternoon. Uh, My boys are 12 years old. Jackson is 12 years old. And then I have a 10-year-old. His name is Jerry Jr. And then my little one, he's our surprise baby. Uh, We still don't actually know how he got here. (laughs) We named him Jude on purpose because that is as close as I could get to revelation because it is finished. It is over. So I got Jackson, Jerry Jr. and almost revelation. I've got Jude and our three boys are, um, as you can imagine, they keep us very, very busy. They are the highlights um, of our lives. And one of the um, trademarks of my children is that they have um, their daddy's size. Um, their, their dad is a big guy. They are big kids. My 12-year-old already wears a size 12 men's shoe. Somebody come help me feed these people, please. Now, I want to point something out. For most evangelicals, this is all that's necessary to determine whether or not a sermon was a good sermon or a bad sermon. Was the person engaging? Were they funny? Were they passionate? 
And and you know Priscilla Shire, she has got the package. She is engaging. She is funny. The stories she tells are you know just they're great. And so they're at, at this point, this is all that's necessary for most evangelicals to determine whether or not a sermon was a good sermon or a bad sermon. And by all of their standards, this is going to be and is a great sermon. But she hasn't opened up a biblical text yet. To determine whether or not a sermon is a good sermon or a bad sermon is to determine whether or not the person rightly handled God's word and preached Christ. Let's see what she does. They are big boys. And one of the ways that it actually works well for them is that they love sports. Whatever is in season, they're kind of playing it. So we find ourselves at basketball courts right now, basketball season, even football. We find ourselves every year um, at baseball diamonds as my second son has found that for sure baseball is his thing. And so my oldest son, basketball is his thing. The youngest one still is trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life. Uh, But that second one, Jerry Jr., um, baseball is his thing. We're pretty proud of Jerry Jr. in baseball because he actually is pretty good at the game. I think because of his size, he's got a lot of power behind his swing. He can already, he's 10 now, but at eight and nine years old, he could swing a bat and get a good hit and get that ball already over the fence line. And then at first base, he makes a lot of stops, pretty good there. He's got a lot of growing to do and he knows it, but he's pretty good and we're proud of him. We enjoy baseball season um, in the fall in particular and also spring ball because, well, it's fall and it's spring. It's not summer. Those evenings when we go out for practice, it's fun and enjoyable because the air, the breeze is blowing by as we're watching practice. And then on those Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. when those games will be, it's early in the morning and and the breeze is blowing and it feels good. The problem with spring ball is that it will become summer ball. And y'all know what happens here in Texas in the summer. The sun ain't, ain't messing around. And it comes out and it scorches us. And there you are sitting there uh, watching your child uh, playing baseball. And it's really okay when there's just one game. But then at the end of the season, there's going to be a tournament. Lord, have mercy. What that means is you're going to go out on Thursday and that you're going to play one game, two games that may parlay into three games if your child's team has done well. Then it means if they did well on Thursday, you are coming back on Friday and you are going to sit there underneath the umbrella or the tent that you bought from the sporting goods store, still sweating bullets running down your face and down your clothes as you try to be excited for your kid that keeps on winning. And then you have to come back on Saturday and then they have the nerve to want you to come back on Sunday for the ending of the series. And, and I don't know if it's ever okay to pray your kid loses so you can go home. And I will neither confirm nor deny that I have ever done that. But I do recall a couple of summers ago, maybe it was last summer even, there was this one particular day where it was scorching hot and we had sat outside and we had gone through two games already. It was time for a break. And so we'd all gotten into our car, gone to a restaurant where we could get some air conditioning and some nice cold ice water. And so we just enjoyed a nice refreshing lunch, came back for the next game. We got all of Jerry Jr.'s uh, gear out of the back of the, the car and we headed over towards the dugout so that we could get him and the rest of his team members all set up for the next game that they were getting ready to play. 
And my son is a, a normally fairly confident young man, and he was actually excited about this next game. But as we got closer and closer to the dugout, I watched my son's countenance begin to change just a little bit. I watched as that chin that had been kind of held up high as he walked over towards the dugout, I watched it kind of hang a little bit. I watched him start wringing his hands and and I saw his shoulders kind of slump forward. He seemed a little worried about something. I looked around trying to figure out what it was and then I thought I I spotted the problem. You see, there was another team. In fact, it was the team we were about to play in this next game. This team had played my son's team earlier in the season. And when this team had played my boy's team earlier in the season, they had annihilated us. I mean, it had been a complete upset, a complete embarrassment. This team was filled with boys who are serious baseball players. You know, the kind that when their parents gave birth to them, they put a mitt on one hand and a baseball on the other hand. You know, the kind, the team that has the serious parents as well. It was that kind of team. And we were up against them again. And my son was a little nervous about it as he spotted this team. He knew how good they were. As we walked past them, he overheard two of the team members talking to each other. We all overheard them. They thought they were whispering, but they weren't doing a great job. One leaned over to the other and said, there goes that kid from from the other team. Do you remember him? He was the one that hit the ball that went over the fence. Yeah, that was the one that was at first base, the one that caught all the outs during that earlier game. That, that's him. The other kid leaned over and said, you mean that's Jerry Shire? My son heard his name cross the lips of the opposing team members. And all of a sudden, that head that had been down, all of a sudden it popped back up again. All of a sudden, his chest poked back out. He got his swag back as he walked over toward the baseball diamond. In fact, we had to bring him down a few notches before the game started. It is absolutely amazing how your countenance changes when you really understand what the enemy thinks about you. And there's kind of the problem. Who's our savior? Are you your savior? No, Jesus is. So we've got a problem here. Now listen carefully to the litany that's coming up because some of the things she says are not said about Christians. They're said about Jesus, and that's where the problem really begins. So all of this story was to kind of give you an illustration so that, oh, well, you got to hear what Satan thinks about you. Uh-huh, yeah. The Satan thinks about me that I'm a sinner, and that uh, I used to be enslaved to him. He's not all that impressed with me. You know what I mean? But uh, let's listen to what she does next. Pay close attention to the litany. The reality is that in our lives, you are going to, and I am going to face challenges. There are going to be battles that you have to fight. There are going to be difficulties that you will have to traverse. And we could face them, church, with insecurity and with our heads hung down, unaware and unsure of how we're going to be able to get through this difficulty in our lives. But everything about the way we face challenges can and should change when we really overhear and understand what the enemy thinks about us. Because the reality is, my friends, that even if we don't believe it, he believes your enemy. He believes every single thing that the word of God declares to be true about you. Mm-hmm. He believes every single thing the word of God declares to, about me. That I'm in Christ, that I'm forgiven, redeemed, set free. Is that what we're talking about? Listen to the litany. Even if you aren't convinced, he knows 
knows because the word says it that you and I are victorious. He knows that you have already been forgiven. Even if you don't believe it, he knows that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So far, it's a little wobbly. Even if you aren't convinced about it, he knows that he is already under your feet. Yeah, Satan's under my feet. Getting a little nervous there because who is the one who crushed Satan? The head of Satan, that would be Jesus. So we got a little bit of a problem here. And um, yeah, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. There's There's some truth mixed with some squirrely stuff here, but the focus is wrong. It's on me rather than on Jesus. Sure, you need to know that he's sure that he can form a weapon against you, but that that weapon will never ever prosper. All of these are kind of the out of context verses of those who are in the word of faith heresy. He knows that you've been made competent by the Spirit of God. He knows that if God is for you, then no one and nothing could ever prosper against you. Uh huh. Yeah, this, mm, yeah, hang on. Yep, that's word of faith heresy. This is, she's clearly influenced by this. What What a shame it would be for the enemy to believe more about our potential than we do. Mm-hmm. Believe more about our potential. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. So if Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing, what does that say about your potential? We continue. For him to be more convinced about who we are because of our relationship with God through Christ Jesus than we are. Well, at least she's bringing Jesus to bear in some sense. But again, what's the role of Jesus in this theology? So I want to talk for just a few moments tonight to anybody who may be in the room. And you are facing a circumstance right now where honestly you are a bit intimidated. So you're facing a circumstance. How much you want to has, no, think that it has something to do with work, a bad relationship, uh, finances, you know, things like that. But discouraged at this particular valley here in your marriage or difficulty in your finances mm-hmm. or trouble in your health or struggle in your singleness or problem. Trouble in your health your job or in that ministry or that business you started, you have run into trouble in your journey of life. And you're wondering how you're going to get across this one so that you can move forward and onward to all that God has for you. There are some, Mm. how are you going to get across this one? Setting up kind of the metaphor of what she's going to do. She's going to allegorize the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Lessons that we can learn. From a group of people in scripture that know exactly how that feels. Mm, they know how it feels. Which kind of begs the question. You know where she's going to go to the Red Sea a story from Exodus. Just like I asked the question regarding T.D. Jakes' sermon regarding the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to ask this, a similar kind of question. Is the reason why God had Moses pen the book of Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea and the children of Israel being set free from captivity to Pharaoh by the mighty hand of God in acts of judgment, was that so that we would learn how to face our Red Sea challenges? Is that the reason why that text was written? Bibles, and you want to turn with me to the book of Exodus, you can do that if you actually still use a Bible with paper pages like I do. <laughs> or you can use your iPhone, your iPad, any manner of iness. Just get to 
Exodus chapter 14, because in Exodus chapter 14, we meet the children of Israel. Two million pilgrims that were once slaves, they have been freed miraculously. And they are now on their journey with God, headed toward the land of milk and honey. They are walking with God, wanting everything that he has for them. Just like you and I are. We are on our journey with God, but on the way. Now, here's the thing. In some senses, you can say that the Exodus typologically points us to the similar journey that we're on. And so you got to be careful because there there is a correct way to take this text and see the parallels in your own life. And then there's another way which misses the point altogether. Now, if you were to take Pharaoh and say, all right, if Pharaoh is typologically pointing me to somebody, who is that? Well, that would be the ultimate tyrant. That would be the devil, right? And we, like the children of Israel, were born in slavery and captivity. You can make that case. And God has set us free from slavery through mighty acts of judgment, particularly the killing of the firstborn, and we are saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. Yeah, that see, you can see the connection there that points us to Jesus. So the children of Israel have been set free. They have struck out from Goshen, and they're heading off to you know the land of milk and honey. Yes, this is true. And we, having been set free, we are heading towards our promised land, which is not here. It's not in this temporal earth. Our promised land is the new heavens and the new earth in the resurrection. So we got that. Um, so they they run into this obstacle, the the parting of the you know the Red Sea, and God has to deliver them and drowns the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Typologically, then the Red Sea actually for real points us to get this baptism. That's right. The Red Sea, the parting and the crossing of the Red Sea, is typologically linked to baptism. No joke. But let's see what she does with this. They come across what seems to be an impossible, seemingly impassable situation called the Red Sea. And with the Red Sea in front of them, threatening them and their ability to move forward in their journey, Moses looks at the children of Israel and says to them the exact same thing that the Holy Spirit wants to say to us today. Verse 13. So the Holy Spirit wants to say what to us exactly? Moses says to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will. Somebody say he will. He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Okay, yeah, that's right. Who's doing the fighting? Who's doing the saving? Who's doing the, you know, setting the children of Israel free from slavery and defeating the devil? Who's, you know, who stand in in this story is Pharaoh? The Lord. This shows salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by God's mighty act alone. God is doing the saving. Ooh, that's good, isn't it? Listen to that again. Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. Because ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> Again, she, she's just a brilliant communicator. She's very skilled in her delivery. 
And unfortunately, that's all that's necessary by today's evangelical standards to say, hey, that was a great sermon. Whether or not it's a good sermon is whether or not it's rightly handling God's word. And we've already noted the fact that Scripture actually forbids her from doing what she's doing. But we continue. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will. Somebody say he will. Notice the word salvation. Again, typologically, this is pointing to our salvation. He will accomplish it for you today. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Moses looks at the children of Israel as they are facing their Red Sea. There's the problem. Now we've allegorized it. It's not that they're facing their Red Sea. They are facing the Red Sea. You see, what's going on here is is that she stretched the typology to a, a breaking point where now it's turning into some kind of promise that isn't related to your salvation, but to temporal deliverance from things that God may not actually rescue you from. This is a problem. It is a huge problem. Looking at it dead on, just like you might be as you sit here in these seats or you're on the other side of that screen participating in this um, time of worship and, and in the word with us. And you are looking dead on. You are face to face with a Red Sea circumstance in your life. Um, okay. Again, you can say that we are all, we all have as Christians a quote unquote Red Sea circumstance if you're going to look at the Red Sea typologically. But if you're going to allegorize it to the point where you're going to just apply it to a difficult circumstance in your life, you're going to make God's word here promise to deliver you from something that he has not promised to deliver you from. But God has promised to deliver you from the devil. He has promised that in Christ you are delivered from tyranny, the tyranny of the devil, slavery to him, slavery to death, slavery to you know sin and all of those things. So the problem, you know, the problem here is is that you are making you're basically evacuating this text in how it points us to sure and certain promises and making God promise things that he has not necessarily promised. Now remember in the litany, you know, a difficult relationship. Uh you know, things are going bad in your marriage, uh, maybe your finances are really bad. Uh maybe you've had a bad diagnosis in your health. These are the things that she talked about in her litany. Well, let's let's walk through this. Just because you've read this story in Exodus chapter 14 about the parting of the Red Sea, and she's allegorized this to say that now you've got a difficult circumstance in your life that's a Red Sea circumstance. So what's the Red Sea circumstance? Well, your financial situation. Where in God's word has he promised to set you free from a bad financial situation? He, he hasn't. You might have to go through a terrible situation. You might have to lose everything. And it you you may never recover. You know you might find yourself in a situation where your your finances are literally wiped out. Your savings account is wiped out, and you don't know how you're going to get forward. Has God promised that you're going to have all that money restored, or that you're going to somehow find get through the situation unscathed, or anything like that? Nope, He hasn't. Maybe uh, things are going poorly in your marriage. Um, at you know that's a Red Sea quote unquote circumstance in your life. Has God promised that he's going to rescue your marriage? 
Is there any guarantee, despite the fact that you might be doing what you're called to do as a Christian in order to rescue and save and restore your marriage and be reconciled to your spouse, that if that's going to happen? Nope. There is no promise. This text isn't promising that. Despite the fact, stand back, watch, and be quiet, and let the Lord do his salvation. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. That's great and all, but it does. this text can't be applied to that. How about uh, you know a situation in your health? You gone to the doctor, and the doctor saying, "Yeah, um, you've got something, and it's bad. You're going to die very soon. You need to get your affairs in order because you're not going to be breathing when in a few months." Yeah, that's a Red Sea circumstance. <clears throat> Has God promised to restore your health, to see you through this thing? Well, yeah, actually, He has in the resurrection, but. That's not what you're looking for, is it? You want something, you, you want to get through your Red Sea circumstance and come out unscathed in this temporal world. So we got a problem here. Typology points us to Christ and what he's done for us. And so when you allegorize a biblical text and you're making it so that he's, God is promising things that he has not promised, you are setting people up for losing their faith. And this is a form of narcissism. The life of you, you cannot figure out how you're going to get around this one or through this one or to the other side of this one. Moses says to the children of Israel, embedded within these instructions that you and I are going to look at for just a few moments, embedded within the instructions, I hope you noticed, there is a promise of victory. He says to them, he will, God will, your God, Yahweh will give you the victory. You do not have to manipulate for it. Yeah, again. God has not promised us the victory in the temporal circumstances that we have. He's promised us, quote-unquote, the victory that he's won in our salvation. Misapplication of biblical typology. You don't have to create it. You don't have to manufacture it. All you have to do is go and claim the victory that you've already been given. I don't know if you know or not, my friends, but if you read the whole book. And that is the word of faith heresy. You already have the victory. You just got to claim it. This is why nobody who calls themselves a Christian should be reading or marking or listening to or purchasing the books and, and you know Bible study series put out by Priscilla Shire. I mean, if this doesn't demonstrate what the core problem is with her theology, then I don't know what else does. But, you know, it's clear. Like I said, I smelled the word of faith heresy, and now it's coming out in spades. This claim that, see, there's a promise in here for victory. Yeah, which victory exactly is it pointing to? What's the referent? Is the referent the victory that we have in the forgiveness of sins by Christ's salvation won for us against the devil? Is that ultimately what it's pointing to? Or is there a promise there for victory over the, uh, you know, the thorny situations that pop up and crop up in our life? Well, if you think it's that, you don't understand what you know how biblical typology works. And like I said, you're making promises for God that he never made. We continue. In the end, we win. The victory has already been given to you. So Moses says, when you realize that you're fighting not for victory... But from victory. Where have we heard these words before? She clearly is listening to Word of Faith heretics. It changes the way you look at the Red Sea. 
When you realize that the victory has already been given to you and that you are just going to lay claim to everything that your God already has stored up for you. Lay claim. Name it. Claim it with your words. Changes the way you face the difficulties and that I face the battles in my life. So Moses says, now, knowing that the victory is already yours, that your God is for you, that he is paving the way on your behalf. He says, now you just do these four simple little things and you can lay hold of the victory that has been uh, has been stored up for you. So we got four simple little things. Then you can have your victory. Oh, man. Says number one, be fearless. He says, be still. He says, be watchful. See the salvation of the Lord. And he says, shh, be quiet. I figured for just a few minutes, we could talk about these four things. Yeah, you kind of get the point. It just goes downhill from there. So apparently if you do those four things, you too can lay claim to the victory that's already yours in, you know, your marriage, your finances, your health, your job and stuff like that. Now, here's the thing. Okay, despite the fact that she is a gifted communicator and, you know, she's very gifted in her abilities, she's passing on what she has learned, and what she has learned is not sound doctrine. What she has learned is the word of faith heresy, and she's making promises for God that God has not made and finding steps that you need to go through so that you can claim this victory that's already yours and all this kind of nonsense. But she's of the same stripe of word of faith heretic as well, T.D. Jakes, Paula White, Robert Morris, and others who twist God's word to their own destruction. We heard this exact same teaching from Creflo Dollar yesterday in his book about making the Holy Spirit your financial advisor. This is what she is. This is not Christianity. This is the health and wealth prosperity heresy with a different face to it. You know, not Creflo Dollar's face or T.D. Jakes's face, but Priscilla Shire. But it's the exact same false doctrine, false teaching, making false promises for God that he has not made in the temporal, trying to take the promises of the eschaton and pull them into the present by you claiming and, and believing and pulling in, the, you know, because you already have the victory kind of stuff. No. This is just extremely dangerous. So should your woman's Bible study, you know, a small group study be studying her books? Absolutely not. You should not be listening to Priscilla Shire, should not be purchasing her books, not studying them with your small groups. She is a dangerous twister of God's word. She is not a careful exegete. I doubt she reads the original languages, and she's just passing on what she has learned from people who have twisted God's word. That makes her extremely dangerous and not somebody solid. And once again, the evangelical industrial complex has given us false doctrine to pass along in our small group studies rather than giving us sound exegetical work that helps us rightly understand God's word. Shame on the evangelical industrial complex and shame on those pastors who are inviting her in to deliver sermons in their churches. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a good sermon from the late 
uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones on The Only Gospel. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for Faith sermon review time. We're going to end the week off with a good sermon. Now, compare the exegetical precision that Martin Lloyd-Jones engages in to what you've been hearing from Bible Twisters all this week, and even in this own episode of Fighting for the Faith. I think you'll see a marked difference, and uh, that should tell you something about what you need to be looking for from a good church. the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. You can find this at mljtrust.org. Sermon entitled The Only Gospel. And he will be preaching, Martin Lloyd-Jones will be preaching on 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Verse 8 reads, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. Thinking that's not even a full sentence. Yeah, I know. But wait till you see what he does with this. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Martin Lloyd-Jones and his sermon entitled, The Only Gospel. Here we go. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the portion of Scripture that we read at the beginning in the second epistle to Timothy in the second chapter and the eighth verse. The eighth verse in the second chapter of Paul's second epistle to Timothy. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David 
was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now those who meet here regularly will remember and will realize that we've been spending a number of Sunday evenings in considering these different descriptions which are given us here in the New Testament itself of the gospel. And we've been doing that <clears throat> because of the tragic confusion that is so obvious and evident in this modern world of ours with regard to this vital question as to what the gospel really is. We start from this assumption that there is no hope in the world tonight apart from this gospel. If you can see another, I'd like to hear of it. There is no other hope. Civilization has been trying throughout the running centuries to deal with its own problems, but has failed and is failing as lamentably and as tragically tonight as it has ever done in the past. There is but one hope, and that is this gospel. The gospel which has never been tried. Never been tried, I mean, by all in the world. And so there is nothing more important than that men and women should know what this gospel is. And that is why we've been looking at these various descriptions which are given of it in the New Testament itself. Now, it's been very interesting. I'm sure those who've been here right through this series will agree with me when I say it's been very interesting to notice how each one of them has something unique to say. Each brings out some special facet or aspect of the truth. The gospel is such a big thing. It's such a great thing. It's such a glorious thing such a many-sided thing, that uh, you can't have one word uh, which in and of itself is adequate and sufficient to describe it, so you have to have a whole series of them. And each one, I say, uh, gives that special contribution and gives us some special insight and understanding. And yet, we must have noticed at the same time that they're all related to one another. You can't take any one of them in isolation, because there is this interrelationship. That's of necessity true about anything that is whole. The parts are all related. They're not just a conglomeration of unrelated portions. That is what really makes the perfection and the beauty of true wholeness. That every single part is related to every other part. And if any part is missing, well then you have detracted from this perfection and from this glory. And we've been seeing that, or let me put it like this, that each one of these aspects, in a sense, implies the other, leads on to it, asks for it, suggests it, and therefore we are not surprised when we come to it. Now I'm saying all this because I'm trying to say just this, that everything we've said so far seems to me at any rate to lead to what we're going to consider together tonight. And that is uh, the description given of it in this 8th verse of this 2nd chapter of Paul's 2nd epistle to Timothy, where he refers to it as my gospel. My gospel. And here we are told something which is of very great importance for us, and it seems to me that we can do nothing more appropriate on this Sunday night before Christmas than consider this particular description of the gospel because this season in and of itself is, as I'm going to try to show you, the best 
exposition that we can ever find of this interesting statement of the apostle when he refers to the gospel as my gospel. Now, what has he got to say? Well, I think as we analyze it, you will agree with me that this is something that is of extreme importance at this present time. You see, the, gospel, the, the, the apostle was confronted by a situation while not, of course, exactly like ours, had got already within it in an incipient form many of the things that trouble us at this present time. I keep on saying this in order that uh, I may at any rate establish this point in your minds. There's nothing new about heresy. There's nothing new about some aberration from the truth. The Apostle Paul was plagued with people like that, these false teachers. He mentions some of them, Hymenaeus and Philetus, Phygelus and Hermogenes, that sort of person. There they were, even in the earliest days of the Christian church, sowing the seeds of error, teaching something that was not true. It's been going on, you see, from the very beginning. So, let me say once more, there is nothing new about these modern aberrations from the gospel, these modern substitutes for the gospel. There's nothing new about them at all. They're all very old indeed. But the devil in his subtlety persuades people that they're new and up-to-date in two ways. One is that he keeps them in such a state of ignorance that they're unaware of church history. And the second way he does it, of course, is to put, if you like, new clothing on them. New terminology is used. And because the terminology is new, people think they've got something brand new. It's the old commodity with a new name on it. Nothing, nothing else. Still the same old errors that have been troubling the life of the church from the very beginning. Well, now then, let's listen to how the apostle handles this particular matter. You've got to see that this statement we are looking at must be taken in its context. The apostle has got his eye on these others as he puts it like this, my gospel. You see, there were other gospels being offered. But the apostle says, my gospel. You notice how he kept on saying this same thing, hold fast, he said the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest that all they which are in it shall be turned away from me. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also, and so on. Now, here, you see, was the great fight of the faith. And this fight is still going on. And there is nothing I say again that is more vital than that we should all be clear as to this gospel, my gospel, the gospel of the Apostle Paul. Very well, what does it tell us? Well, I suggest to you that he tells us some things like this. The apostle is here claiming that this is the only gospel. The only gospel. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Why does he put it like that? Well, now, let's be clear as to what he doesn't mean. I remember many years ago reading a sermon by a man on this very text 
And this is how he handled it and interpreted it. Ah, he said, the vital question is, can you say my gospel? His point was that, uh, unless it was something experimental, unless it meant something to you, that it was of no value. He said, if it's merely some theory or some philosophy that you're considering, and uh, or you've read about it, but uh, there it is, you, you're very detached from it. He says, it's of no value. He says, the vital question is this, have you had such an experience that you can say, my gospel? Of course, he went on to say, it may not be the other man's gospel. Uh, he says, the point is, it's your gospel. He says, another man may disagree with you, but that doesn't matter. Has he got something also that has made all the difference to him, which he calls his gospel? So you see, the whole point of the sermon was just to put this emphasis upon experience. He was speaking uh, in connection with a certain movement that was very popular at that time and is still in existence. And the whole emphasis of that movement was that it didn't matter what you believed as long as you could say, whereas I was once blind, now I see. As long as you could say that your life was changed, that you'd had some great climactic experience, it didn't matter what you believed. One man might say this and another man might say that. One man might believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, another might say he was only a man. One man might say that you must believe in his atoning death, the other said it doesn't matter as long as you see him displaying love. Believe what you like, as long as you've had an experience. That was the brunt of his argument and of his sermon. We're saying, you see, that the Apostle Paul was virtually telling us here that the one thing matters is that you should have this experience, this great change in your life. And as long as you've got that, all is well. My gospel not, may, may not be the other man's, but don't quarrel with him. It's all right. Believe what you like as long as you've got an experience. Well, now, what is truly amazing is that anybody could ever say a thing like that in the light of this context. Because, you see, the, the apostle's whole argument is to say the exact opposite. That's why he's concerned about these people like Phygelus and Hermogenes and Hymenaeus and Philetus because they were teaching something wrong. He says, you've got to hold on to this form of sound words that you've heard of from me, this thing that has been committed to you. It isn't, he says, what you may believe. It's you've got to go on and give to other men who can pass it on to others this deposit of truth. It's the whole argument of the apostle. And yet, you see, because of the two words, my gospel, the man takes it right out of its context, and he preaches that nothing matters except that a man has an experience. And it doesn't matter whether you've got it from one truth or another as long as you've got an experience. The apostle certainly didn't mean that. And the very verse we're considering, as I'm going to show you in and of itself, is proof positive that he meant nothing of the sort. And then another misunderstanding of it is this. It's very different from the first one. Indeed, it's the exact opposite of it. It's uh, the case of those who say, ah, oh, yes, that's typical, of course, of your apostle Paul. That's just the sort of thing he would say in his conceit and arrogance and intolerance. They say this has been the trouble that this Pharisee came along, this clever man, this Saul of Tarsus, and feisted his own opinions upon the gospel and twisted it out of recognition, turned the simple gospel of Christ into a complicated theological rabbinical system 
And now he's so intolerant and arrogant, he says, if you don't believe everything I say, you're wrong. He alone is right and everybody else is wrong. You're familiar with that, I'm sure. You've often heard that. And so when the apostle tells this young disciple of his, Timothy, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, he's just giving a display of this utter intolerance. Well, I needn't weary you. The answer to all that is found so abundantly in the New Testament itself. The apostle goes out of his way to tell us in the 15th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians that the gospel which he preached was the gospel that was preached by all the other apostles. He says exactly the same thing in the epistle to the Galatians in the second chapter. He went up to Jerusalem specially to settle this matter and to get it clear. There are repeated statements about this everywhere. The gospel of the Apostle Paul was the same gospel as was preached by all the other apostles. Very well. He's not saying either of those two things. What is he saying? Well, I say what he's saying is that this is the only gospel. And that is why he is urging upon Timothy to be quite clear and sure of it and to hold on to it at all costs. Now, the Apostle, as I'm reminding you, repeats this so often. Take, for instance, a still more striking statement of this at the beginning of the epistle to the Galatians. He turns to these Galatians who had become Christians under his own ministry, but then these other false teachers had come along, and he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. This is the only gospel. There is no other. Now, in putting it like that, the apostle, of course, is just repeating what was so constantly on the lips of our blessed Lord and Savior himself. He claimed that he was the Savior of the world. He claims an utter, absolute uniqueness. That was the thing that infuriated the Pharisees and scribes and led them in the end to encompass his death. He didn't say that he was better, he just said that he was different. He contrasted himself with all others. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, I say unto you, I am the light of the world. Now, there's the most exclusive claim that could conceivably be made. He says that there is no light in the world apart from him. He says he is the bread of life. The very bread of life. He says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. He says, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. These are absolutely exclusive claims. He stands before the world and he says, listen to me, come unto me, follow me. He claims that he and he alone is the Savior and that his and his alone is the gospel of salvation, the gospel of God. And therefore, you see the Apostle Paul not saying anything new. Not saying anything fresh. The Apostle Peter had indeed said it all before the Apostle Paul. And even before Saul of Tarsus ever became the Apostle Paul. 
The Apostle Peter very early in the history of the early church uttered this tremendous statement. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. It's the only gospel. And when Paul says, my gospel, he's referring to this only gospel. Not because it is his. Why then? Well, because he and all the other apostles are in exactly the same position. They were taught it by the Lord himself. The others had been with our Lord during his earthly ministry. He had instructed them. They'd seen his miracles. They'd heard his word. They'd seen him dying. They'd seen him after the resurrection. He had expounded the scriptures to them. They have a message which is given to them. It isn't theirs. They all preach the same message because they've received it from the same source. And it's the same with this man. Here he was, a Pharisee, hating it all, blaspheming it all, doing his utmost to put an end to the early church. And then you remember the great story on the road to Damascus. How he met this blessed risen Lord and Savior and there he was commissioned to go to be a witness and a teacher to the people and a light to the Gentiles. He's commissioned, he's given his message and he keeps on saying this. A dispensation of the gospel, he says, is committed unto me. That's why he says, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. I've been given this job, this task. It's been given into my charge. I've received it, he says to the Ephesians, by special revelation. That's why he can say, my gospel. He's not asserting his own personality. He's not just being intolerant. He's simply saying, look here, this isn't a matter of opinion. The Lord himself has given it to me as to my fellow apostles. This is the only gospel. Listen to it. Now then, that's the first thing that he means by saying, my gospel. That in turn leads me to put a second point to you. Namely to ask the question, well then what is this gospel? If it's the only one, the most important thing for us all to know is, what is it? And the apostle answers the question. And you notice how he draws our attention to it and emphasizes it. Remember, he says, remember. Now, this is, uh, this is the key word in many ways, and it leads us to say this, you see. There's no difficulty about knowing what the gospel is. No difficulty at all. The gospel is quite plain. The apostle wouldn't be able to say, remember. He wouldn't be able to say, my gospel. Unless the gospel is something that is plain and clear. You can't contrast something with something else unless you know what this is and what that is. You can only judge if you've got a standard. And there is a standard. The standard is my gospel. How can you tell that other teachings are wrong unless you know what the true teaching is? Well, the apostle says, you know what the true teaching is. It's the thing you've heard from me. It's the thing that's been committed to you. It can be defined. It's absolutely clear. But that, you see, is the very thing that is not only forgotten today, but is so tragically being denied. The impression given today is this, that, oh, as long as you've got the Christmas spirit in you, you're a Christian. Doesn't matter what you believe. And indeed, they say, you can't, you can't describe it. You can't define it. It's something very wonderful. To be a Christian means you've got some marvelous spirit of benevolence in you, and you just put that into practice. Believe what you like, doesn't matter. And they say, it's no use of men saying, now, this is Christianity, that isn't Christianity. 
It's no use of men arrogantly getting up and saying, I don't think that man's a Christian. Why? Well, they say, look at the good work he's doing, look at the good life he's living, look at the sacrifice he's made. They say, that's enough, they say. Well, you, you mustn't criticize. But you see, that's a denial of everything that Paul says here and the whole of the Bible says. Remember, my gospel, there's no difficulty about defining Christianity. It's men who are creating the difficulties. The thing itself, says the apostle, is perfectly clear. And I must go further. Not only was it clear in the first century, it's equally clear now. Because it's the same gospel. Again, let us get rid of this most ridiculous and fatuous of all ideas that the fact that we're in the 20th century summer makes everything different. My dear friends, the gospel that we are considering is about God acting. And he's the eternal God. There's no change. The only gospel we have tonight is the gospel that's come down to us from these apostles. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and any man's modern ideas and theories I'm not interested in, and he shouldn't be interested in, why? Well, he doesn't know. It's been given once and forever. The truth, once and forever delivered uh, to the saints. Well, what is it then? Well, here, in a most extraordinary manner, we have a wonderful summary of some of its main elements. What is this gospel? This gospel of Paul? The answer is, it is the story concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and the meaning of the story. What am I to remember? I am to remember Jesus. Remember that Jesus. What else? Well, Jesus is of the seed of David. That defines it still more for me. That reminds me of a little place called Bethlehem. Jesus. Ah, we are looking at a man, at an historical person. Christianity is not a philosophy or teaching. It's something that tells us about a person who's appeared in history, Jesus. And Jesus is of the seed of David. And that, I say, links me at once with some of these great uh, vital historical facts concerning this most amazing person that the world has ever seen. Jesus of the seed of David. And it is because Jesus was of the seed of David that he was born in a little place called Bethlehem. Do you remember Luke 2? It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, then in brackets, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So at once, the apostle is telling us that he's talking about this Jesus that was born in that little place called Bethlehem, in the stable, and his little body was put into the manger. Seed of David, this is his lineage, you can trace it. He's, in other words, telling us that the gospel all centers on this person. The babe that was born, born of a virgin, or as he puts it in writing to the Galatians, born of a woman. They try to say sometimes that the Apostle Paul didn't believe in the virgin birth. They say that because they say he doesn't mention it. He does mention it, in my opinion. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. This was taken for granted by him in his epistles. You wouldn't expect a great emphasis on the virgin birth in the epistles. 
That comes in the Gospels. That's the thing that had been preached. This was the thing that was believed. The deity and the virgin birth. But he was truly man. The apostle is emphasizing that. And it needed to be emphasized then as it does now. It wasn't that there was a great appearance of the Godhead, a kind of theophany. No, no. Neither was it the case that the Son of God took on him a kind of phantom body. No, he was truly man. The Word was made flesh and dwelt, among, dwelt amongst us. This babe was a real babe with a real body. And he was born in the stable and put in the manger. This is what the gospel is about, says Paul, and not only that, the whole story of this Jesus, all that you read in your gospels, all that he did and all that he said. But then you notice he goes on to say, remember that Jesus Christ, now here's the significant term. The gospel message was and is that this Jesus is the Christ. In other words, he is the Messiah. He is the deliverer. And how does he deliver? Well, he says he was raised from the dead. He tells us thereby that he died. You know, not only can you define the gospel, not only can you say the gospel can be stated in propositions, you can very often put it in one verse, and we've very nearly got it all here, haven't we? He died. Yes, and he's the Christ because he died. He's the Messiah, the deliverer, because he died. This was gospel preaching. First Adam breathed by John the Baptist. There he is, he said. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. There he is. Listen to him. This is the one. But he dies. And his body is taken down from the cross on which he died. And it's buried in a grave. But if that were the end of the story, there'd be no gospel. And the apostle wouldn't be able to say, my gospel no, no, he rose. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And it was the risen Lord that he'd seen. It was the risen Lord the others had seen and had received their commission from him. Now, this is the essence of the gospel. You see, the gospel is not uh, just an appeal to people. Now, look here, Christmas time is coming. Can't we all pull together? Can't capital and labor really forget their troubles and their problems? they put a little of this Christmas spirit into it all and let the nations of the world come. It's being done every year and we're sick and tired of it, aren't we? It comes to nothing. It's only when you're not quite sober that you can really believe there's any value in that sort of thing. It's not true. It doesn't work. It's just playing. It's being childish. No, no, but it isn't the gospel. The gospel, my friends, is to tell you of what's happened, what's taken place. This Jesus, son of seed of David, Bethlehem, died, buried, risen. Now then, there are the great facts concerning him. And it is because of those facts that the pronouncement is this. That in him and in him alone is salvation to be found. Listen to our Lord himself saying it after the resurrection. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until he be endued with power from on high. 
This is the gospel. This person, these facts, and this is the meaning of the facts. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And, of course, this is the precise thing that these apostles proceeded to do. There are many examples of this. Peter preached this very thing, you remember, on the day of Pentecost after Jerusalem. And the apostle Paul, in his great sermon at Antioch in Pisidia, as it's recorded in the 13th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, does exactly the same thing. He gives the facts concerning this uh, Jesus. And he takes them through the facts and ends with, but he whom God raised from the dead saw no corruption. He'd already said, but God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days, and so on. Then he goes on to say, be it known unto you, therefore. Here's the application. He gives them the facts. He preached the facts concerning Jesus. Jesus Christ of the seed of David, born in Bethlehem, dead, buried, risen. Here's the, here's the application. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware therefore lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold ye despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though men declare it unto you. There it is. This is precisely what the preaching of the gospel means. There is our gospel. There is my gospel, says Paul. And there, by the grace of God, I can say, this is my gospel. It's the only gospel. There is none other. It is concerning this person and the meaning of all that he came into this world to do. Very well. That's the proposition. But now let me ask my third and last question. Why is this the only gospel? Somebody is probably anxious to ask that question. You stand there, says this person, and say, this is the only gospel. Why do you say it's the only gospel? What right have you to say that? What about these other insights? What about these other world religions? Can't we be helped by Hinduism and Mohammedanism and Confucianism? Don't we need a great congress of the world faiths? Don't we need all these religions with their insights? Are you not being arrogant and intolerant again? Why do you say this is the only gospel? Why do you insist upon people believing these things? Why do you say that there is no salvation in any other? Now let me answer that question. My first answer is this. And how appropriate it is on this Sunday night before we celebrate the birth of the Son of God as Jesus of Nazareth. My first answer is this. If there could have been any other gospel, well, then, the things I've been reminding you of would never have happened at all. If there had been any other way whereby mankind could be saved, do you imagine that the eternal Son of God would ever have come down from heaven to earth? Would the eternal Father ever have allowed him to come and to endure the contradiction of sinners against himself? The thing is impossible. It's inconceivable. I ask, if there were any other way whereby mankind could be redeemed, these marvelous, amazing, astounding things would never have happened. But they have happened. The Word was made flesh. 
The Son of God did take unto him human nature and was born as a babe, and he was despised and rejected of men. But come to the very height of it all. Look at the cross on Calvary's hill. Look at him before he gets there, staggering up Golgotha, with that cross too heavy upon him, they have to call in another to carry it for him, Simon of Cyrene. Look at them hammering in the nails. Look at the agony and the sweat. Look at the crown of thorns. Listen to him crying out, I thirst. Look at the agony of soul. Look at him crying out in the cry of dereliction, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I simply ask you this question. If there were any other way whereby mankind could be saved, would God in his eternal love ever have allowed this to happen to his only begotten, dearly beloved son? The thing is monstrous. This most amazing thing that has ever happened in connection with him, this thing, I say, if there had been a conceivable alternative, would never have happened. He came and was born of a virgin and endured and suffered so much even to the death and the agony of the cross and rose again because there was no other way. But come, let me work that out with you. He uh, is the only one in whom the promises of God are fulfilled. He is the only one who has fulfilled the promises. Have you ever thought of it like that? You see, the gospel, in a sense, doesn't start in the first verse of Matthew. The gospel starts away back in the Old Testament. God had been promising this. He'd been telling the people he was going to send a deliverer. The gospel goes back. Paul speaks in writing to the Galatians of the gospel preached in Abraham. And it was. It was even preached in the Garden of Eden before that. Now, you see, God has been making promises throughout the running centuries of a deliverer, a messiah. The only one who has fulfilled all those promises is this blessed person. And that, again, is an absolute proof in and of itself that this is the only gospel. Paul tells the Corinthians, all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him are, are amen to the glory of God the Father. He is the only saviour, this is the only gospel for this reason. He is of the seed of Abraham. That's why a Greek philosopher could never be the saviour. Seed of Abraham. Oh yes, even the natural seed of Abraham. You remember the great promise God gave to Abraham. He said, in thee and in thy seed, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. That tremendous promise given to Abraham. So whoever the Savior is going to be, he's got to be of the seed of Abraham. And he was. Also of Isaac, also of Jacob, also of the tribe of Judah. That caused great confusion when our Lord was here on earth because he was of the tribe of Judah. They couldn't understand how he could be the great high priest because he didn't come from the tribe of Levi, tribe of Judah. It had been promised. Scepter shall arise out of Judah. This Shiloh that is to come. All these things have been promised. Seed of David. It's all here. Why? The little town of Bethlehem had been prophesied and predicted. You'll find it in the prophecy of Micah. 
You see, my friends, there are tremendous promises and they're detailed promises. And the only one who answers to them all is of necessity the only Messiah. And here is the only one. And in exactly the same way, here's the only one who fulfills all the types and shadows that you see in the law that God gave to the people, the children of Israel, through Moses. There's another reason why I say this is the only gospel. There is no one else, there is nothing else that fulfills the prophecies apart from him. Let me hurry on. And this is a most vital one. Here is the only one that can really teach us about God. And that's our fundamental and ultimate need. No man hath seen God at any time. No man can see God and live. How can a man know God? How can a man be just with God? Here's the only one who can teach us about God. You remember how he put it, talking to that great learned teacher of the Jews, Nicodemus. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, listen, we speak that we do know. I'm not speculating, said Christ to Nicodemus. I'm not a theorist. I'm not putting up an idea. I'm speaking that which I know and testify that which we have seen. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Listen. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. I alone have this knowledge, says Christ to Nicodemus, because I have come from heaven. You haven't. Nobody else has. Mankind knows nothing about heaven. They've been trying to get there, but they can't. They're pitting their little minds against the eternal. They don't. They're ignorant of God. The world by wisdom knew not God. But I've come from God. You know, there's that tremendous statement in the beginning of the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some of those statements mean this, that he was looking into the face of God, and he was. The eternal Son looking to the face of the Father. So when he comes, he can speak and say, I'm speaking what I know. I've looked into the face of the Father. And nobody else has, and therefore nobody else knows anything at all about him. That's why this is the only gospel. Your Greek philosophers, they did their utmost. I'm not here to criticize them, but they couldn't get there. They died in ignorance. No man can ever ascend to this knowledge of God. It is impossible. It must come down, and it's come down in the sun in all its fullness. And this is, you see, what he keeps on Claiming, he turns to the Pharisees with their carping criticisms and he says to them one day, you have never heard his voice, you have never seen his shape. He says, who are you to be talking about God? Have you ever heard the voice of God? Have you any idea of the form, the shape of God? What a word. I don't understand it. Nobody does, but he meant it. He knows God in that ultimate sense. Nobody else has. Keep quiet, he says. You're speculating. You're simply expressing your prejudices. You don't know. And there he is in his high priestly prayer at the end of his life. This is what he says. Oh, righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. Doesn't hesitate to say it. It was the truth. He knew it. 
He's the Son of God, comes from the bosom of the Father, and is still there, has looked face to face with the Father from all eternity. That's my third reason for saying this is the only gospel. But let me give you a fourth. This is the only good news. This is the only gospel. Because he is the only one who could perform the task that is necessary to our salvation. What does mankind need? The fundamental needs of mankind are just these. We need forgiveness. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be restored to the favor of God. The problem of our guilt and sin, the problem of our fallen nature, we need not only forgiveness, we need a new life. We need a new beginning, a new nature, a new heart. We need someone who can bring us to glory. That's the task. What the world needs tonight is not advice. We've been having it throughout the centuries. There's plenty of advice in the books tonight. We all ought to be perfect. If all we need is good advice, there are plenty of books which will tell you how to live, but the question is how to perform, as Paul puts it. I know, he says, what is good, but how to perform that which is good, I know not. To will is present with me. That's the whole problem. So this is what we need. And here is the only one who can meet the situation. What do we need? Here's mankind fallen and in sin estranged from God and sunk in degradation. What kind of a savior do we need? Well, we need someone who must be a man to represent us. We are men, partakers of flesh and blood. And we need someone who can stand as our representative. So, whoever the Savior is to be, he must be a man. And the answer is, he is. Remember that Jesus, Christ of the seed of David, truly a man, the Word was made flesh. You see, every part of this gospel is an absolute essential. He's man, as we are. Truly man. The incarnation is a fact. Then he must be able to keep the law for us perfectly. You see, no one can help us and deliver us unless he can keep the law himself. And all who had lived before him had not been able to keep the law. There is none righteous, no, not one. By the law is the knowledge of sin, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. The whole world lieth guilty before God, because all have come short of the glory of God. It's the law that condemns us, and anyone who is to save us must obviously therefore be able to keep the law himself perfectly and absolutely. The Savior, as the Apostle puts it, has been sent to redeem them that are under the law. So it must be a man, and he must be one who can keep the law himself absolutely perfectly. If he fails at one point, he's finished. He can't save us, can't save himself. Is there any other who's ever kept the law perfectly? Is there any other who's ever appeared who could stand and say, What evil do he find in me? And the devil findeth nothing in me. Nothing. No one could bring any real accusation against him. Satisfies the law of God perfectly and completely. What else do we need? We need someone who can conquer our enemies, and particularly the devil and his hordes. No one can save us unless he can conquer the devil 
What would be the point of my being put absolutely right and clear tonight? I've still got to fight the world, the flesh, the devil. And he'll get me down as he's got me down. Only the only one who can save me is one who can conquer, master, defeat the devil and all his powers. There's only one who's ever done it. It's the same one. Jesus Christ of the seed of David. But wait a minute. Here is this terrible load of sin. Here is the record that's against me, the writing that is against me, the indictment of the law. And I can't be saved until that has been dealt with. God is a just, righteous, holy God. He can't wink at sin and pretend it isn't there. He must deal with it and therefore we need a savior who's big enough to take our guilt upon himself and bear the full punishment and yet live. That's the problem. He's got to be big enough and strong enough and great enough to do that. To take the full penalty and the wrath of God upon our sins so that God can be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. He's, been able, he's got to be able to bear it all and still remain to present us to God. So the apostle says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, giving proof that he'd satisfied the law of God, that the books had been cleared, that all was well, and that God is fully satisfied. The resurrection is the justification delivered for our offenses, raised again for our justification, and in the resurrection God is pronouncing to the whole world that he's reconciled, that all is well, there is free forgiveness of sin. But the resurrection in doing that proclaims at the same time that he is the Son of God. As Paul puts it to the Romans, of the seed of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Here he is, man yet God, Jesus Christ. Son of man, son of God, seed of David, seed of God. Conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. He is the only one who could take that load. God and men. The divine human savior. And he is the only one who can start a new humanity. He is the second man. He's the last Adam. He's the first begotten from the dead. He's the only one who can give us new life. He's the only one who can give us new birth. Yes, says Charles Wesley, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He must be born again, and I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. The water that I shall give him shall be in him as a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Except a man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he hath no life in him. 
He alone can give us life, and without it we are lost and helpless. Forgiveness isn't enough. I've got to stand in the presence of God, and I must have a new life and a new nature. And he gives it me all. And likewise, and lastly, we need someone who, having purchased our pardon, having reconciled us to God, having given us life anew, and take us by the hand and lead us and guide us and guard us and protect us as we go through the remainder of our journey in this evil and sinful world. And thank God it's the very thing he does. We need such an high priest that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We need one to represent us with God that understands our case and condition because he's been through it himself, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, and also at the same time able to sympathize with us. Though he's God at the right hand of glory, he's touched still with the feeling of our infirmities. He came down and had men spitting into his face in order that he might be able to help you. He can do it. We need such a savior, and he alone can do it. And then, the final event of all. To stand before God. Have you ever thought what it means? I had to try to help a lady the other day that came to see me from the country. One of whose main troubles was this. She's a good Christian woman, she said, but you know, there are times when I'm terrified when I think of the second coming. Terrified. I said, I'm glad to hear it. I'm far too familiar with people who can take it in their stride and just say it glibly. It is a terrifying thing, I said. So far, you're right. It's very good. Can you imagine what it is to stand before the presence of God's glory? We need someone who can present us to him. And here's the only one who can. Here is the one who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy. Here is one who saves you in life, will lead you to the end of the journey. He'll be with you in the river of death, in the final crossing. He'll be with you on the other side. And he will present you before the presence of the glory of God with exceeding joy. That is why, my friends, this is the only gospel. It is the only message that can satisfy your every need and mine. It is the only message that covers all the things that are going to happen to us. There is none other. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And he's done it. This blessed, glorious Savior. Remember, I say to you, remember, my friend. Jesus Christ of the seed of David. Remember all the truth concerning him and what it means. Oh, I press it upon you. On this Sunday night before Christmas. Remember this, I say. Remember, it's the only gospel. Why? Well, my dear friend, because of the dread alternative. 
If you don't believe this, there's nothing left for you. Nothing at all. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You see, your problem and mine as the result of sin was such that it took all this to save us. You neglect this, there's nothing left but perdition. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. My friend, listen, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no foundation that is big enough and strong enough to support the need of men but this. It's the only one. It's the exclusive one. It needs no help, no addition. And if you're not on this foundation, you will go to eternal misery and wretchedness outside the life of God. Oh, my dear friend, remember this. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Remember that if you believe this, your sins are forgiven. You are reconciled to God. You become at once a child of God. You have a new nature. You'll have a new heart. You'll begin a new life. You'll be an inheritor of these great, exceeding great and precious promises. You'll get to know God. You'll begin to experience joys that you would never have been able to imagine. You'll find something happening within you, a process taking place within you, something you don't understand, a power within you leading you on, and a hunger and a thirst after God and righteousness, and it'll go on and on. You'll lose the fear of death in the grave. You'll know what it is at times, as I was saying in this pulpit last Wednesday night about the great George Whitfield, what it is even in your youth to desire to go to be with Christ, which is far better. And you'll be able to look forward to a glory that is beyond description in its magnificence and its splendor. My dear friend, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to the only gospel. Believe it and be saved, be safe. Amen. Now shall we join the hymn of praise unto him. Hymn number 176, the second part. We are going to sing the second part, beginning at verse 7 of hymn number 176. Join all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that mortals ever knew, that angels ever bore. All are too mean to speak his worth, too mean to set my Savior forth. The man who can sing that honestly is a man who can be certain of his salvation. He can begin to look forward to the glory everlasting. God give us grace, all of us, to sing it from the heart. 176.
Amen. See the difference? What'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by Carrie's death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>